Welcome to the Ars Technicast, where Ars Technica writers and editors discuss the latest in the worlds of science, computing, technology, and everything else in between. During each episode, we dig deep into some of the issues we're writing about at ArsTechnica.com. We also talk about some of the stuff we're doing when we're not circling around the Ars orbiting headquarters. I am one of your two hosts, social editor Cesar Torres, and we've also got here in the studio with us Casey Johnston, Ars writer. Hello. And we've got a special guest today in the virtual studio, tech policy editor Joe Mullen. Hi. Hey, welcome to the podcast for the first time. Yeah. Thanks. This is a big moment for you. Yeah, happy <laughs> to be here. So you've been sort of at the helm of uh, our our ongoing NSA leaks, Snowden coverage, and it's just sort of this, the story that keeps unfolding, and I'm not even sure how long it's been going on for now. It's been a couple of months at least. Yeah, about two months. And um, it's, it's just the new facets just keep appearing, um, the most recent being that uh, – it's, this is a, this has been super controversial, but um, the there is a suspicious shutdown of this service, this email service called LavaBit that uh, Snowden himself uses, and I believe it said in the article that he used it to contact a bunch of uh, I'm not even sure who it was, but a circle a circle of people he wanted to have come visit him in the airport where he's apparently living, and. Uh, once it came, once it came to light that he used this email service, it was shut down. Do I have that correct? Right. That is basically what happened. Um, it's not clear that there was a direct line between those two things, but it certainly um, got a lot more attention because of that. Um, right. So Snowden uh, was holed up in the airport in Moscow for um, quite quite a while, uh, I think close to a month, um, which is where he fled to after leaving Hong Kong under pressure. Um, Snowden, of course, is the one who leaked all of these top secret documents from the NSA, um, which confirmed what um, privacy advocates uh, had suspected but not been able to prove, which is that there was a massive government surveillance program, a dragnet collecting, among other data, the phone call information for everyone in America, every single phone call. Um, And not the content of the call, but what the government calls metadata, which is really just data about uh, who is calling who, for how long, from what number, uh, possibly from where. And um, so Snowden was in the airport in Moscow. The U.S. was pushing for his extradition. And at that time, he invited several people, mostly from human rights organizations, um, to come and have what would have been a press conference if he had invited the press, right? But he didn't. He invited these activists who then spoke to the press. Um, And it became known that at least for that invitation, he used an email service called LavaBit which is a sort of secure email service um, with a high level of security. Uh, the founder says it was email built by geeks for geeks. And so it, really LavaBit just had a, a blip of publicity um, from that. It, it wasn't a big deal, but there were a few people that 
sort of noticed the service because of that and wrote about it and said, oh, hey, that's that's cool. Uh, it had some interesting features. It got a shout out on Boing Boing and a couple other blogs. Um, and then uh, just a, f- a few weeks after it was used by Snowden, um, it abruptly shut down. And it shut down with kind of the owner leaving behind this cryptic message about how he had to shut it down to avoid what he called crimes against the American people. Um, and so that's uh, where it was left. So, okay, can we work on potential interpretations of this this turn of events? Because I feel like there's there's undertones of he was contacted by the government and the government said shut down or else. Is that is that a possible thing that happened? I, no, I don't think that's quite what happened. I, I think there was over one. It, there's well, it, the message is clear. This happened because of pressure from the U.S. government. I mean, that is the message that LavaBit founder Ladar Levison is trying to get out there. That the government was forcing him to do something really bad, mm-hmm. and he chose to shut down rather than do that. The government didn't want him to shut down. The government wanted him to do something that he refused to do. I see. And that something what is... What that something is, we don't know. But I think it's pretty clear that the government insisted that his um, – that they be allowed to surveil at least some of his users to get the content, I would think, of their emails and possibly some kind of bulk metadata order mm-hmm. um, about you know who's emailing who in his service. And he felt that because the whole premise of his business was really a promise to offer users security and privacy, um, that he would just be essentially lying to all of his users mm-hmm. because people didn't go to LavaBit because it was, you know, just the first thing that popped up on Google when they said, oh, free webmail, please. Um, people who use LavaBit were looking for a specific set of services and a specific set really of promises. He had, you know, over 400,000 users and he felt like he would be betraying them. He's made that clear and he has done interviews, um, some of which we have reported on um, since the shutdown, which was very painful for him. He, he created the service um, in response to the Patriot Act uh, in 2004. Mm-hmm. So, he created the service from the very beginning as um, a response to, you know, government action and government surveillance. So, uh, yeah, from the perspective of, of being a business owner, it just seems he he was really trying to prevent that disaster, that that loyalty that he had with this community of users um, the, from the outward appearance. That that's what it would look like. But yeah, like you said. I feel like there's probably pressures there that we don't know a lot of details about. Yeah, I mean, we have to imagine that basically, I mean, I I could speculate. He probably created deliberately a service that had no back doors or no ways to tap into the contents of what um, people were writing. I mean, he said that, you know, the only way – he created a service where he could not, even if he – he could not look at his own user's email. There's no way for him to do that, even as the administrator of the whole service. And so I think it may be that what happened is the government insisted he create some kind of way 
for them to do surveillance through his service. And rather than do that, he shut it down. Now, he's also under a gag order. That's why we have really so little information about the specifics of what he was asked to do, um, because he could actually go to jail just for talking about it. Um, And it's not clear if this came in the form of what's been called a national security letter. Those are that's a tool used by the FBI that's known to include these gag orders. A few people have fought those off. It's incredibly difficult. Um, in the same show that um, Democracy Now! recently featured um, Ladar Levison, the founder of LavaBit, and um, we reported on that interview as well. Uh, in that same show, they included um, Nicholas Merrill, who did successfully fight a national security letter, but it took him six years. And um, so Ladar Levison may be looking at a very lengthy legal battle. So he's in a very tough situation. I mean, he's chosen to basically walk away from his business and become an activist because I think he felt pushed into a corner and that's all he could do. Another, um, it's worth noting that that wasn't the only uh, secure email service that shut down that week. There was a second one called Silent Circle, which had an email service, and they also felt that they could not... um, provide the security that their users were looking for. And they, you know, said a lot of prominent people, reporters, governments used their service. And so they also shut it down also without warning. Both of those services, you know, have thousands of people that lost their emails. Um, And they've, you know, really had to apologize to their users. They knew they were, I mean, inconveniencing, saying they're inconveniencing their users is maybe putting it much too mildly. I mean, who who knows what was in those accounts? I mean, if someone just shut off my – I'm a Gmail user. If someone just shut it off tomorrow, I don't know what I would do. Um, but they, you know, they felt like the sacrifice they were making if they had um, – done what the government told them to, it would be worse. Silent Circle said specifically they were not approached by the government and never had been. They just saw, quote, the writing on the wall. So in in Silent Circle, it should be noted, they have other elements to their business that they're trying to protect, such as like secure texting and secure voice products. Um, So they, you know, it's almost kind of like you have a couple services this week where they're saying, Email as a form of communication just doesn't feel secure anymore under any circumstances if you're concerned about government surveillance. I mean, Levison said um, that he's taking a break from email, period, for a while. So what is it likely that the government was asking for? Were they asking for the like this, the security keys to actually read the content? Were they asking for traffic logs? Like how how deep do you think they were trying to get into this? into these or not, or just the one email service, but. Yeah, I I think the two things they were most likely asking for are one, they're, they certainly are going to believe that they have the right to collect the actual content of specific email accounts if they have a warrant for that account. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think they would be frustrated if they're in a position where they couldn't do that. And I imagine they could exert a lot of pressure in a situation where they could not do that. The other thing they may want is um, bulk data collection on all accounts. Mm-hmm. That's not clear, um, but certainly the government has, um, you know, is using an interpretation of a specific part of the Patriot Act, 
which um, they believe allows them to collect data on all phone calls, and they could certainly have a similar interpretation about um, you know things like email data. And, and Joe, jo, that some of that would entail sort of looking for uh, wider patterns in some of that like large set those large sets of data. Is that what right. they're looking so for? So, for example, it's possible that the government is collecting, you know, email data in bulk from from services, say, like webmail services, like Hotmail or Gmail. We really don't know. I mean, that's been reported on by, you know, the Guardian, which has been the newspaper that's primarily been publishing the most of these leaks. Um, it, it's a little different than the Verizon situation, in which. In that situation, they actually published the document, the actual proof that the government is collecting every phone call from Verizon. You know, the the origin, the recipient of the call, the length of the call. And then when called on it, it the government didn't even deny it. And they, you know, it became clear not it wasn't just Verizon. There are orders in place for, you know, presumably at least all the large phone companies. Um there was no document published saying, oh, yeah, we've got, you know, there was no order, say, to Google saying, you will give us all, you know, Gmail metadata on a regular basis. Um, instead, they published these documents about a program called PRISM, and there was ultimately a lot of lack of clarity about really what that meant. Um, but so we're still somewhat in the realm of speculation, I would say, in terms of uh, – what the government is doing with internet data. I don't think it has the same kind of crystal clarity um, as the telephone situation, but generally the answer is a lot and a lot more than people thought. That's, that's how much data they're getting. Would it be possible if, if the internet or not the internet, the government gave the lava bit founder a warrant for, you know, all of the data he already has and not necessarily a request to monitor. Does he has to comply with that? Doesn't he? Like, he would have to send them his, you know, I don't know, servers or whatever whatever he has on hand. Right. I mean, if the gov- – yeah, if the government – yes, he would. Yeah. If the government believes that, you know, it has an interpretation of uh, the Patriot Act or another law that allow it to collect, um, say, bulk email data, then, yeah, email providers would have to comply with that. We know that's in place with telephones, and some things may well be in place with regard to email data. And th- that's the thing. I think that's one of the reasons why this lava bit shutdown has got a lot of attention is that you got one guy who was ready to take a stand and had a business really built on his own principles, and he was ready to just walk away from it. Well, if you're, you know, most email companies aren't just solely focused on email. They have a lot of different businesses to protect. Uh, So they're not really able to do that or not willing to. So this this shutdown sort of almost invalidates every encrypted service because it's only encrypted so long as the government doesn't decide to turn its eye on it and be like, oh, you know, let us into everything that you have. And then it's just, it's not what it, purported to be right the question is what is every other email provider doing 
that Ladar Levison refused to do. Mm-hmm. And it sounds pretty bad, <laughs> but we don't know. And we also know in terms of con- collecting the actual content, I-, I think Sean Gallagher had a piece about this. You know, the NSA has acknowledged um, that it uses sort of rules like this idea of um, two degrees of separation from someone who it believes may be, you know, involved in a terrorist group. Mm-hmm. Um so that's actually a huge number of people. Yeah, I saw and something that there only had to be a reasonably small number of quote-unquote suspected terrorists in order to, to cover like 99% of people, basically. It was like a 1,000 or something like that. Just think, of, just think of someone you know in your circle of friends who travels a lot or who works with um, political groups abroad. You know, I knew uh, a close friend of mine works for like – Jewish American World Service and doing development projects abroad. And, you know, they're not, people don't know the politics of (laughs) every single person they interact with in kind of like international development groups like that. Mm -hmm. And some of them might be, from the point of view of the U.S. government, pretty radical. So then it's, you know, you know, it doesn't take much to do a couple degrees of separation or, you know, I've never really, until this working at ours have not done very much national security reporting. And I mean, so I don't know, (laughs) writing one story about Edward Snowden, I imagine that's I'm one degree of separation, even though I've never interviewed or communicated with a guy Mm -hmm. directly in any way. You've read his Um, forum posts that implicates you as one of his close associates. (laughs) Perhaps, I mean, as perhaps millions of ours users have. Based on this logic, yeah, that, that would make sense. Uh, you know, Joe, that just even 30 years ago, uh, the, there would be maybe just two or three places where people's uh, information uh, of communications would be uh, available to the government. So it would be the, the telephone system or maybe the um, the U.S. Postal Service, which we know is more secure when it's paper, right? But uh, it's so interesting now in 2013 where uh, all of people's communications are just decentralized, really. There, you've, you know, people are using Twitter and email and text messaging and then alternative services that even go beyond what would be the quote-unquote like commercial um, companies that provide this. One of the challenges for, for lawmakers uh, in terms of kind of putting definitions to uh, what what communications are, what data is, and what metadata is. Because I see metadata being used incorrectly uh, time and time again as these stories continue to get reported on. Right. Yeah. I mean, so I think um, it is a challenge to kind of design a law that can actually protect people in an era where, you know, it's so easy to the problem we have is the tools for a totalitarian surveillance state exist. And the, so we have to create some kind of policies and laws to prevent that from actually happening. And now people are realizing, whoa, we've gone way farther in that direction than anyone realized. So we've got to have some smart reforms and some smart lawmaking that take us back more towards an interpretation of the constitution that's, really more conventional and that most of the American people would expect. I mean, most people don't think all their, you know, um, information about all their phone calls is, was going to the government until very recently. Um, I think step number one is going to be, um, 
you know, the, the government's interpretation, the government's own interpretation of the laws right now is itself a secret, which is pretty unbelievable. So the government won't reveal how it is interpreting, you know, say the Patriot Act. And there's, you know, there have been lawsuits challenging that. EFF has had a lawsuit for some time now um, saying, challenging that idea that the the interpretation is secret. And there's been reform-oriented members of Congress, in particular, um, Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon has uh, said that it's a problem that this, you know, the government's own interpretation is secret. In 2011, he said that when the American people find out how the government has interpreted the Patriot Act, that people will be angry. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's sort of step one is that, um, we've got secret laws, secret courts, and secret interpretations of the law. None of this is being done in the light of day. So, you know, that's why to groups that are concerned about reform and people that are concerned about having a, a fair system that, that seems to abide by the principles in the Constitution, um, you know, the reassurances of, say, President Obama in the, in the press conference he gave about a week and a half ago um, are ringing hollow because he's sort of saying, well, there are no abuses. There are, there are checks. We are watching it. But there haven't really been good answers to questions like, well, how many of these requests for data has the FISA court, that's the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act court, um, how many times have they turned it down? And the answer is they've, they've turned down very few. So to a lot of people, this looks sort of like a rubber stamp court, number one. And number two, they're using interpretations of the law that we're not allowed to know. So, you know, it's th this is a court that's really does not abide by the same rules as the rest of the federal judiciary. Yeah, Obama seems like he was uh, particularly dismissive of everyone's concerns over this. He's just like, we would have gotten to this. We would have figured it out. We would, and like, uh, but it doesn't seem like if it had been done his way, nobody would have ever known. It, a, they wouldn't have known it was happening. B, I kind of doubt that the same concern would have been raised like it, it wouldn't have seemed as bad without the whole you know the bulk of the public and congress being like wait this isn't right he might have just been like oh sounds reasonable and you know signed off on it and that might have been the end yeah his i mean his response to these concerns has seemed a little more than a little bit tone deaf and fairly uh dismissive. Yeah. He kind of said, well, we had a panel that was about just about to look into that. And these, these things would have happened anyhow. Um, and there aren't really any abuses, which I don't, I don't really think that's going to satisfy anyone. Um, I think there is going to be a little more noise for reform than they expected. I, I think really when this first came out, they originally thought, well, this is going to kind of blow over and um, you know, that somehow there would be sort of a, a trust us, we're doing the right thing line that could be taken. Um, but I, I don't think that's how it's going to pan out. I mean, we had this extraordinary vote where 
you know, the House of Representatives almost voted to defund the NSA. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's that's one of the most interesting votes we've had in Congress in years. I mean, Congress and especially the House is so partisan right now that it seems like practically all the two parties can do is, you know, fight the other party. But you had a really interesting vote where the to- – to- totally blew apart party lines and you had hardcore Tea Party Republicans on the same side as more um, liberal Democrats. Um, and it, it was a close vote. Um, and I, I, so that pressure is mounting. And, you know, and what Ron Wyden said in my interview with him was, I said, why do you think that happened? He said, well, you know, people are hearing about this. People are hearing about it when they go home. They're hearing about it in senior centers. They're hearing about it at the barber shop. You know, he, Ron Wyden literally said to me, I did not think I would live to see the day where, you know, I heard I was in the barber shop in Oregon and someone comes up to me and has a question about the FISA court. But that's what's going on. Um, and it, it's not going to blow. It's not going to blow over. So. It'll be you no know, right now. Congress is on their August recess, so in a few weeks they're going to come back. But I don't think this will have gone away um, by any means. And even those Congress people who voted to support the NSA um, or to not defund it, rather, have said they are going to insist on some reforms happening. So I, you know, will this reach the level of you know sort of SOPA and PIPA, where kind of just people who use the internet, which is to say everyone kind of wakes up and on moss and we see this unprecedented level of activism. I don't know if it'll get to that point, um, but something's going to happen. I mean, you know, the idea that a few Congress people who are on the intelligence committees are going to be able to reassure everyone and say, well, there was oversight. Everyone kind of knew about it. That's not going to work. I mean, because you have even people like Jim Sensenbrenner, who is one of the sponsors of the Patriot Act, kind of come out and say, no, I, <laughs> I actually didn't know that. I, I didn't think I wrote a law that said collect everyone's phone call mm-hmm. data. So um, I'm not really sure how this part of it fits in, but uh, it was just reported uh, it was ye- it was yesterday in the Washington Post, but I don't know if the news is older than that. That na- that the NSA is uh, cutting ninety percent of its sysadmins, which I don't know how much how how big of a part of their staff that is. But um, what's what's the significance of that? Uh, I actually have not read that. Really. I Take a look at that. Yeah, and, and apparently they're contractors. So it seems to me that uh, there's, at least underlying that, there's a, an idea that uh, things would be more secure. They'd be less likely to have uh, whistleblowers or leakers uh, if, if they were employees um, right. that were there. And also they um, – they're also intending to move a lot of data into the cloud, which is really interesting because their belief is that by automating this much, they could use fewer humans. And again, they have fewer chances of leaks. But then you can get into the conversation about how secure is the cloud, of course. So, so then right. what I'm hearing is their strategy is here we have all of these people who have no real loyalty to us being that they're contractors. So what we're going to do is make them angry by firing them, knowing what they know. And think that that will fix something. That doesn't seem like a good strategy to me. But um. I, I don't think there's, you know, for, well, first of all, I think that um, I don't think, well, I think contractors for the government do actually have, you know, more loyalty. I mean, 
And there's if if you do what Edward Snowden did, bad things can happen to you. I mean, he's mm-hmm. fled his country and has no idea when or if he'll ever be able to come back. He's mm-hmm. basically, I mean, he's not in jail, but he's, you know, in some kind of safe house in Russia. He has had to leave his own country. He's not in a place where he wants to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I yeah, I, I think that makes sense uh, if they're going to sort of bring some more people in-house. The fact is it's going to be a huge technological operation. They're going to continue to have thousands of people administering that project. And I don't think the problem of leakers is going to be one they're going to be able to totally eliminate, especially when you have people like Snowden. I mean, he's really an interesting guy i mean it's a he's really a leaker for the 21st century he was extremely well thought out he's an extremely smart guy he knew exactly what he was doing and it was interesting to see in the president's press conference a lot of president obama's frustration um seems like it's aimed at the almost the pr strategy of snowden and the guardian you know obama complained about how this information has been released in the most sensationalized manner possible this keeps coming out in dribs and drabs over the weeks you know kind of like they had this pr strategy to release a little bit at a time and make a series out of it and kind of not let the news go away and they absolutely did i mean this was mm-hmm. and you know it was this was a, has to be seen as kind of a form of activist journalism and a very interesting one uh, but, you know, when I was hearing that, I, the thing I was thinking is, oh, so you mean they learned some of the things that have been done in Washington, D.C. for decades now? <laughs> I mean, timing the release of a news in a smart way to get your point across to maximum effect. Mm-hmm. I was like, I mean, come on, Dad. They learned this by watching you. Well, and, <laughs> and agreed. I, you know, I think one of the real threats there would be it's, you know, you, you mentioned the PR strategy. It's actually that uh, Snowden has the potential to be a charismatic figure, to get people riled up. I mean, you, you even just look at some of the things that uh, we've reported on and some of his statements. Uh, so, for example, here, here's one. Here's a quote. Uh, Hello, my name is Ed Snowden. A little over one month ago, I had a family, a home in paradise, and I lived in great comfort. I also had the capability without any warrant to search for, seize, and read your communications anyone's communications at any time. That is the power to change people's fates. That kind of statement is so provocative. And you would argue, I would argue that it's a bit being like a bit of a drama queen, but it's powerful. I mean, when you write and speak this way to people, it there's a charge that happens. So it's not just what did the government do or what is in, what information is in that data. It's the fact that he's sort of saying, yeah, um, People need to mobilize around this uh, particular issue, and I think that's, you know, the uh, the Obama can, uh, administration's reaction to to some of this. He's been ready to just make these enormous, um, you know, he's been in order to say what he said, he sacrificed a lot, and I think when you have people in that position that are ready to do that. Um, first of all, there's going to be a very limited number of them. I mean, there were thousands of people who could have done what he did, and they didn't. And, but second of all, I just don't think the government will be able to totally eliminate it. I mean, there are going to be people who just feel like if they do stuff like this, they're going to have gone too far. I think it's sort of funny, too, how this has this sort of um, greatly orchestrated PR, you know, campaign for you know, Snowden and his leaks and The Guardian and all of that stuff has sort of caught the PR side of the government flat footed. And now they're struggling to sort of 
pitch their what it is that they're doing like they're trying to shed a positive light on it and it's or like a trying to mitigate the the alarm that people that that snowden stuff has raised and and just it results in this like like this 1.6 percent of traffic that the nsa quote-unquote touches and they're just like oh it's not that much but then it turns out it's really a lot and it seems like it's probably you know if if you were to pick a one per, a 1% of internet traffic that was the most important that's the kind they're touching and i should add that you know people have this impression i um when we report on it and when the guardian reports it that oh there's been a new leak and we do use the word new leak in in headlines and in articles but it's important to note that um you know glenn greenwald who's been the reporter at the guardian mainly in charge of these leaks and is in the most direct communication with snowden he has said that the leaks were essentially done you know over a month ago so this the timing of what we're seeing now is really up to greenwald and the guardian and it, it's important for readers to know that ed snowden You've written a lot about him as a figure, and uh, you've looked at his past and obviously at his present. But I'm really curious, uh, when you first started reporting on him, you were obviously building a profile of a person. The picture that you had of him back then might be more three-dimensional now. And so I wanted to ask you, uh, what are the differences that you see in the way that you understand Snowden from when you started reporting to today? Yeah, sure. I mean, well, and then let me just go, I think, straight to the point, which is that I had a big story a bit over a month ago about his um, IRC posts, which was that was um, the information that we really had as an exclusive to ours. And let me I could talk for a minute about the kind of origination of that story and what I learned during it. Mm -hmm. Um, That was by far the biggest piece we had on Snowden. And, um, you know, and all the information about Snowden other than that and his the one about his ours post, we were really down downstream of other media outlets. But the basic timeline was this. As soon as Snowden revealed himself to the world, people at ours kind of suspected, oh, wow, he may have been an ours user. You see this 29-year-old hacker guy with an EFF sticker on his laptop. Just seems like the kind of guy who could be an ours reader. But we had no idea. Then Reuters reveals his old username and a profile. So mainstream media outlets using multiple reporters were working on in-depth articles about Snowden's history um, with a level of resources that we didn't really have. They revealed his old username, which was the same username he used at ours. Reuters revealed this without knowing that he was at ours, but other people, not us, it was actually a, a former Reuters guy, and then uh, who noticed it, and then some people on Twitter, some other blogs like um, BuzzFeed started saying, wow, this guy's actually been a longtime ours user. And he had, he had hundreds of, um, he had over 700 posts on ours. And so we, we wrote about those, as did a lot of the media, because it was the biggest body of his writing that anyone had seen. And then after that, following that, we got in touch with some longtime ours users in this channel called Ours Official, which is one of the IRC channels that are hosted by Ours. And from those longtime users, we got uh, years worth of logs, chat logs, um, that were taken that included a lot of chat by Edward Snowden. And so I read a lot of those chats and I did learn a lot about him. Now, I mean, we had years of logs, but he only logged on during particular days, right? So it's not, you know, as much information as you think. But I would say it's, you know, definitely in the hundreds you know, maybe over a thousand sort of chat lines by by Snowden. And so what did we learn from that? 
Well, it was interesting. He was a lot more political and kind of argumentative in the chat rooms than he was in the forum posts on ours. Um, he had pretty strong opinions about a lot of stuff. He was really, um, in some ways, he kind of had uh, sort of, you know, certain ideas you would associate with being a libertarian. Um, he definitely supported Ron Paul, sort of, you know, thought his ideas about the gold standard were good ideas. Um, he was skeptical about Obama. He really disliked Bush. Um, and th- there were, there was some disconnect between what he said in our chat rooms and his, the public statements he's made, um, since then. Like, for example, he was, he really had more disdain towards Obama than, um, he's said later, you know, you know, lately he's, when he revealed the leaks, he said, well, I wanted to give Obama a chance and, but from what we've seen in the chat rooms, he was he was pretty skeptical towards Obama. Um, the biggest thing is that he, even though he was kind of a libertarian, he definitely had this, you know, exhibited support for the kind of existing security state apparatus of the U.S. And he said that he thought leakers should be shot at one point. Um, this is about four years before he actually became a leaker. So that was an extraordinary statement. And that is what we led the story with. Um it is really important to note that he logged off of chat around 2009 and didn't come back. So we had a picture of Snowden from about, you know, four to five years before he became a leaker. And it's also important to note that there's nothing in those chats that indicates he was going to become a leaker. He seemed like a guy working for the CIA. He did not reveal that in chat. Um, who, you know, had sort of was in some ways was sort of his eyes were opened wide by traveling around the world and living in Switzerland. Um, but he did not have, I would say, unconventional views for who he was um, for an IT guy who liked to hang out at ours um, and who worked for the government. Um, the thing you do notice is that even then, a few years before um, he became a leaker, he was someone who is incredibly sure of his own beliefs. You know, I've described ours official as if, if IRC is kind of like a bar and people are engaging in bar banter, ours official is like the channel at the back of the bar where it's the guys are hanging out who think the front of the bar is too stuffy and they just want to be able to talk about whatever the hell they want to talk about and not have anyone bother them. When you go into ours official, you get a message saying no one should complain about what's said in this channel to moderators. Everyone gets that message as soon as you go into it. So it's really a like no whining kind of chat room. Right. And the argument could get very heated and um, you know, he was the kind of guy who would, there's a certain kind of guy who's willing to get into a political argument at a bar. He seems like he was that guy, but also the guy who would never lose. I mean, he would just take it. Um, he would not give up. So he was extremely determined and sure of his beliefs and could be abrasive. And I, I think that's something that um, you have not seen at all in his public personality since he's become this big leaker. He's extremely measured, extremely calm. Um, he doesn't have that abrasiveness, but he is certainly still sure of himself. I mean, he has that from somewhere deep down. He is absolutely convinced that he is right. And if he's surrounded by people telling him that he's not right, 
that's not necessarily going to affect him. He's got his own compass. That's what strikes me about all of this. He, Based on what we've seen in the reporting of those uh, logs from IRC and uh, what he's doing now, it seems to me like he's, one, matured as a, as a person. You really see sort of a difference in his exposure to the world and uh, being just a more sophisticated person later on. But it seems like he's channeled uh, a type of um, that certainty also comes from a place probably of aggression. You know, you want to make sure that people know that you're right. And it really seems like he's he's funneled that into kind of a, a real PR strategy because that's how he comes off when he makes statements and appearances now. Very yeah, calculated. Yeah. And he's, you know, he's, this is, it's, it's, I, I think this has to be the most calculated and well thought out leak in, in the history of leaks. I mean, he has said that, you know, he has, multiple copies of the documents around the world and that if something happened to him like if he even if he was killed that these leaks would not disappear he created some kind of system which i would i would think has to involve another person or two um but we don't know uh to make sure that these got out no matter what happened to him and um and you know and we do know that the US government has been totally unable to stop them. So it's very well thought out. And in terms of the timing, you know, I think the guardian probably played a role in that too. I think a lot of that is up to, to them and they want to maximize the effect of this reporting. Um, but yeah, I think it's, there was a lot of forethought, uh, on the part of both the guardian and Snowden. I wanted, I wanted to touch on the, the clapper aspect of this whole trajectory, um, I guess we sort of started going there with Obama, but um, I'm I'm kind of interested in Joe's opinion on how that's really going to shake out. If you if you really think, I mean, he did he did. Uh, it, it seems like the common interpretation is that he lied about the NSA collecting any data at all. He said no, right? In like two years ago. Um, right. And. Now, now he's he's attributing that to a misunderstanding. But do you think this really he's really in a good position or has a good history for this sort of? Do you, do you believe him that it was a mistake or do you think it's it's sort of going in the wrong direction? I mean, it's you know it is hard to believe in particular because and Wyden Senator Wyden uh, is the he's a longtime NSA critic and he's also the person who asked Clapper that question. The question he asked, which I believe was in 2011, was is the NSA collecting data, any kind of data at all, on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? And Clapper, who is the director of national intelligence, uh, said no, or at least not wittingly. And that's not true. Uh, We now know that's not true. He has said it was a mistake for him to say that, um, but he only admitted that after months of headlines. And it's very hard to believe he didn't know what was going on, especially because Wyden did not catch him by surprise. Wyden has said that his office, or at least people in Wyden's office have said, um, you know, Clapper got questions a day in advance and knew exactly what was going to happen and exactly what he would be asked. So, you know, yeah. In terms of the term, in terms of the word, you know, lie, sometimes this, 
you know, it's hard to prove anyone's a liar. This mm-hmm. is a thing that comes up in the media from time to time. Liar is this really strong word in the American political lexicon. You know, politicians can say, you know, they can practically say anything about their opponent. They can say that he, you know, I don't know, is like maims puppies, but you can't call the guy a liar, right? Um, I don't know why it's like that. I think the word lie just implies – it implies intent, so it's really hard to uh, prove that someone's a liar, right? Someone can always say, oh, whoops, I didn't know, or you know, I'm the stupidest person on the planet, um, so therefore you can't prove that I'm a liar. I think what's more relevant with Clapper is that he now has – he is viewed negatively, I think, in a wide swath of the public, and that is not going to go away. And the president it is a very strong evidence that the president right now is pretty tone deaf to reformers because he, you know, two weeks ago on Friday, he said that there was going to be this panel and, you know, it's kind of a bureaucratic response, right? Rest assured, everyone, there is going to be a panel of experts. I mean, literally, that's that was going to be the response to this. A panel of experts will review everything. Do not worry. <laughs> and then on Monday, it only took until Monday to find out that the panel of experts was going to head up, be headed up by um, Clapper, the head of the, you know, the director of national intelligence, who is not well respected in the community, in the reform community. Um, and that was just a totally tone deaf move. I think if he wants people to be placated even a little bit or, or even to give it a minute, you know, um, to play out, that's just not something that he's going to be able to do. And, um, I don't, I I think we're going to have to watch what happens in Congress. I mean, that's the next thing I'm watching is what's going to happen after this break. I mean, you know, there's, and it's not the only issue we're watching. I mean, there's other tech issues we're watching. There's been a huge, um, push for patent reform this year there's six bills in play Mm -hmm. but you know that's the surveillance is going to be at the top of the agenda and um i think obama is you know is underestimating the um the kind of steam and and power behind this uh reform movement i think more people are upset than than maybe he realizes yeah i can only imagine um, okay. I feel like that's probably a good place to wrap up here. It sure is. Yeah. Uh, Joe, I want to thank you for uh, visiting us in the podcast. Are we, I hope you're going to be coming back a lot. This was so interesting. Yes. Great. Thank you. Yeah. I'd love to be back. Yeah. I can't wait to see how this shakes out. Oh. And, uh, as, as usual, uh, you can find, uh, links to all, all the stories that we discussed here, including, uh, the Snowden pieces on the show notes of the podcast. And you can also follow Joe on Twitter. He's, uh, at Joe Mullen. And, and we have, yep. And we have an NSA leaks series tag, which has all our dozens of stories that are connected to the NSA leaks and features about the technology that's behind these leaks, uh, behind the surveillance and things like that. Mm-hmm. We have so much reading for you to do now. You're welcome. <laughs> get, get, get those browsers ready, everybody. Yes, open uh, those tabs. So uh, we'll just uh, mention again that uh, we love it when you guys leave us a review in iTunes. That really helps us a ton. And so uh, give us a star rating, leave us a review. We're also on Stitcher and SoundCloud. So you can listen to the show there. And, of course, you can always go right to the post on ArsTechnica.com, hit the player, and you can just listen if you don't need 
subscriptions uh, flooding your podcast app or whatever you use. So uh, thank you for being here, and uh, I'll talk to you guys soon. Bye. Bye. Bye now. Thank you.